0: This is the BBC.
1: This podcast is supported by
2: advertising outside the UK.
3: Kanye was just more going to make it happen. He was one of them people that I knew was going to win Grammys. You know, no one man can sustain or should have to even try to sustain that much power.
0: I think what I'm just trying
2: to say is it's so much bigger than Kanye.
1: On an all-new season of making from WBEZ Chicago, the rise and fall of Ye, the artist formerly known as Kanye West. Listen wherever you get your podcasts.
2: Sounds, music, radio, podcasts.
0: Thanks for downloading this episode of In Our Time. There's a reading list to go with it on our website, and you can get news about our programmes if you follow us on Twitter at BBC In Our Time. I hope you enjoyed the programme. Hello, on the 26th of August 1346, two armies met in a funnel-shaped valley outside the village of Crecy in northern France. The French, led by Philip VI, far outnumbered the English under the command of Edward III. However, the English won the battle, a feat often put down to their use of longbowmen against the French heavy cavalry. French casualties were huge. The Battle of Crecy was the result of years of simmering tension between Edward III and Philip VI, and it led to decades of further conflict between England and France, a conflict that came to be known as the Hundred Years' War. With me to discuss the Battle of Crecy are Andrew Aiton, Senior Research Fellow in History at Keele University, Erica Graham-Garring, lecturer in late medieval history at Durham University, and Anne Curry, Emeritus Professor of Medieval History at the University of Southampton. Anne Curry, can you tell us something about Edward III? He reigned for fifty years.
3: When did he first come to the throne? He came to the throne in January 1327 under really quite unusual circumstances because his father, Edward II, had been deposed essentially by his wife, Isabella, and uh, Roger Mortimer, her lover. So Edward was only 14 when he became king and I think at that point he's very much under the tutelage of his mother and uh, Mortimer. He doesn't really seize control till 1330 and this is a bad time. Uh, relations with the French are not Good. They'd had to come to a treaty soon after he became king, actually, that gave the French a lot of what they wanted out of the war that had happened over the previous three years. And then even worse, in March of 1328, they had to come to a humiliating treaty with the Scots as well. So Edward really begins his reign in a very bad position vis-à-vis English ambitions against the French. And against the Scots. Of course, the reason why they've been fighting the the French isn't anything to do at this stage with a claim to the crown, but it's about the territories that English kings had had in France since the 12th century, particularly the Duchy of Aquitaine based on its capital at Bordeaux, and also an area around the Somme, known as the County of Pontia, that had been inherited through the wife of Edward I, Eleanor of Castile. Now, those were good lands to have, but they weren't held in absolute sovereignty. Edward was Duke of Aquitaine and essentially held the County of Pontia, so he owed homage for those to the French king, and that's really a difficult situation.
0: Been going on for a long time, and then it went on for the Hundred Years' War. After that, so it was a rather pivotal point here.
3: It had indeed, of course. So uh, one thing was that in 1204, uh, King John had lost Normandy because previously the kings of England had held Normandy, given that it was uh, England to be conquered by William the, the Conqueror. The way people talk about back kings in losing places.
0: If they drop something on the pavement, uh, out of an
3: interesting it? thought. I think the loss of Normandy was more significant than that <laughs> because we had a cross-channel nobility, some with lands in England and in Normandy. And of course, after 1204, they had to choose whether they're going to become French yeah. or whether they're going to become English.
0: And that was seismic, seismic in, uh, in in English.
3: Definitely, it's a real turning point. And the, the the Normans and the French just love to celebrate that victory too. Yeah. And so we,
0: he's faced with this. He's quite young. Is he being well advised? Does he know which side
3: he's on? I think for the first three years of his reign, he doesn't really know what to do, but when he seizes power, he starts to become much more interventionist. He's particularly ambitious against the Scots. That's where we see him first active in the early 1330s, and it's in Scotland that Edward really serves his apprenticeship, uh, winning a battle at Hallidon Hill in 1333 that very much sets the tone for the use of archers later on.
0: Thank you very much. Erica, thank you. Graham Goring, when the French King Louis X died in 1316 there was a succession crisis I mean that century is just of succession crisis, so let's face up to it. What was the nature of that crisis?
2: So this particular crisis, indeed one of many, uh, happens when, as you say, Louis X dies, and he leaves only a young daughter and a uh, posthumously born son, who is king for all of five days of his life. And it's unprecedented because of what's often called uh, the Capetian miracle. Since this dynasty had taken the French throne uh, back in 987, they'd had over 300 years of uninterrupted father-to-son Transmission of the throne, and that is just biologically unlikely. It comes as a real shock to the political community when all of a sudden there's no longer that son.
0: A girl pops out.
2: Exactly, and the problem is, there are no rules in place. You'll you'll hear people say, "Oh well, there's the Salic Law; it forbids uh, women coming to the throne." But that's actually not something the French were aware of at the time. Instead, uh, we have a series of older uncles of the brothers of the last king being adult males competing with young daughters. They are just more practical leaders to put in place. So you get Philip V taking the throne from Louis's daughter, then Charles the Fourth taking the throne from Philip's daughters And then it escalates. We run out of brothers.
0: What was Edward III's claim on the French throne? Did he have a real claim on the French throne and did he pursue it?
2: When, in 1328, we run out of those brothers, we can either climb back up the Capetian family tree and jump over to a cousin, Philip Valois, or we can consider Edward III's claim. Because even though we've come to develop an idea that women don't themselves come to the throne, the question remains, can they transmit their inheritance to a male relative. Well, Edward we've already mentioned his mother Isabella she is the sister of all those Capetian brothers who succeed uh, to the throne in turn so if she can't be queen in her own right, can Edward through her become king? What happens is that Philip VI He's a grown-up, whereas Edward at this time is only a teen. He's already embedded in the French political community. So a group of the elites, the magnates, choose him as king.
0: Thank you very much, Andrew. In 1337, Philip VI confiscated the Duchy of Aquitaine and the county of
1: Pontier from Edward. Why did he do that, and how did Edward respond? Well, he did that because, of course, he'd been drawn into the Scottish problem as well. The old alliance, dating from the mid-90s, had meant that the French were free and indeed willing to support the Scots in their efforts against the King of England. By the 1330s we see Philip VI actively intervening in Scotland. He harbours the boy king, David II. He's planning a big military operation, a twin one in Scotland in the, in the, the Channel. So tension is simmering between England and France already. Add to that a number of other circumstances which encouraged Philip to, as it were, go for uh, grabbing the territories that Edward held in France. The cancellation of the crusade that was one of his pet projects by Benedict XII, the Pope, who who saw that the crusade was simply impractical given the circumstances. Uh, That meant that the fleet that was being based in the Mediterranean, was moved to the Channel, which created further cross-channel tensions between England and France. But the trigger for the confiscation of uh, Aquitaine and Ponthieu in, in, in May 1337 was the fact that Robert Artois enters the scene. He's been at Edward III's court for several years. He had fallen out badly with Philip VI. He is the trigger is the justification for Philip to confiscate Aquitaine in May 1337? Thank you,
0: Anne Anne Curry. Uh, so his French lands are confiscated. That's that's where we are at the moment. Edward's French lands. So he wants, He looks around for our allies and looks in the Low Countries. Cities like Bruges and Ypres and Ghent. Why were these cities important to him? What did they offer?
3: Yeah, Edward really isn't in a position to launch a full frontal attack on uh, France himself. He needs allies, and there, what he does essentially is to buy military help. He spends a huge amount of money on this. But why specifically those in the low countries? We would call it modern-day Belgium or the sort of areas around Luxembourg, that kind of thing. Well, because they're on the borders of France, and One of them that he really needs to get is the allegiance of the Flemish, because they're actually in France. The Count of Flanders is, like himself, a vassal of the King of France. So he can't get the Count of Flanders at this point. He's loyal to Philip VI, but what he can get is the Duke of Brabant, and he can also get the Count of Hainault, and also... (laughs) He can get the alliance with the emperor, the emperor Ludwig the Fourth of Bavaria, because the French and the Germans already hated each other. And so what better than to get the emperor to declare Edward vicar general of the empire and allow him to attack that little bit of France around Combray that was actually in the empire. And that's really what Edward was planning to do.
0: Thank you. Erica, in 1340, we're slowly getting to the Battle of Crecy. In 1340, Edward declared himself King of France. Why did he do that
2: then? The reason that he does it, he's got immediate reasons and long-term reasons. Immediately, it's those allies uh, that Anne was just talking about. Um, he's trying to convince the Flemish to rebel against the King of France, effectively. So if he says, hey, I'm King of France, mm-hmm. that gives them the excuse to say, well, we're actually supporting the rightful king. But longer term, it's, it's really a way of cutting the Gordian knot of Aquitaine. If he is tired of having his duchies uh, and counties taken away from him because he's, in theory, subject to the French king. Wouldn't it be nice if he was the French king uh, and no longer had to be subject to anyone else?
0: (laughs) Oh, good. Well, so he sat there thinking, wouldn't it be nice if I were French king? (laughs) Good. Who hasn't Uh, thought that? Yeah. Andrew. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> Andrew Aiton. Uh, in 1341, there was a succession. Dis- we'll get to the battle. In, 13- in 1341, there's a succession dispute in Brittany after the death of Duke John the Third. How did Edward and Philip get involved, and what's going on there?
1: Well, there's an underlying and very important strategic factor from Edward the Third's point of view: the sea route from England to Aquitaine and Bordeaux and Bayonne the centre of the wine trade exports to England, so it's partly about commerce and it's partly about communications with the Duchy of Aquitaine. Now, the opportunity arises when Duke John III dies in April 1341. There are two candidates, his half-brother, John Montfort, and his niece, Jeanne de Pantieve, and her husband, Count uh, Charles de Bois. Philip backs the latter, Jean de Ponteviève, and Jean de Montfort turns to Edward III for assistance. There's a battle at Morlaix in late September between a small English army and uh, the forces of uh, Charles de Bois, which shows a sort of miniature Cressy, with archers and dismounted men-at-arms in a defensive position, easily defeating heavy cavalry from the French
0: and so we come to the summer of 1346, <laughs> where Edward raised an army, said to be the biggest army that had sailed from England, had sailed to France. What did he want to achieve there, to you Erica, what did he want to achieve?
2: There's actually been some debate about this. You know, Is he here just to wreak as much destruction as he can? Or is he here with a real targeted purpose of drawing Philip out to battle? Because we haven't had, in all these years of war, we haven't had a direct confrontation on land with the the French king. I think it's actually a bit of both, because you use the destruction to lure out the king. The
0: destruction being when he took his army over, they rampaged through Normandy, they laid waste to it as much as they could, They created havoc, took a lot of loot, and were basically taunting uh, the king of France say, are you going to defend your people or not.
2: Exactly. Right. It's a technique called the chevaux And the reason to target Normandy specifically is that it is one of the wealthiest areas of France. It's an eighth of the kingdom in size but it produces a quarter of the income and is also politically has a very interesting relationship with the French king. Ever since uh, it was captured from the English in the 13th century Normandy has a very strong independent spirit. It, it, it gets its privileges confirmed. It is a powerful political entity. So the king needs to keep up good relations with them and needs to be seen as to be acting as their proper leader. But
3: uh, well, that campaign as Ergo said is really quite astonishing. I mean I think it's a sort of uh, 14th century equivalent to Blitzkrieg he moves extremely quickly through Norman territory he, he gets to Caen, he besieges it briefly, it falls to him and he loots it, uh, well, it but then he moves straight of, on. It no no it offended, it's no. not a campaign of conquest No he's no. not
2: acting as Duke he's not here to say I'm reclaiming this for myself, he's saying come Protect your people if you if you dare. Mm.
0: Can you just give me a bit more detail, Andrew, about the uh, army that Edward took with him,
1: and how he raised it? Yeah, as you say, it's the biggest army that has taken to France during the Hundred Years' War. Um, it's an army to fight a battle, I think. Uh, the sheer scale of it, the number of archers involved, the key missile how many? about eight thousand out of about fourteen thousand in the army itself. Uh, 8,000 long women? Yeah. I mean, some of them raised in retinues by noblemen, alongside men-at-arms. Some of them raised in the counties, uh, the shires of England and the Welsh lordships. So, for example, a county like Dorset might be asked for 100. So you have an army with 8,000 uh, archers, about 3,000 men-at-arms, and then other Welsh foot soldiers making up the balance. A balance between... Archers to provide Have you cavalry: Yes, the men-at-arms I mean, right. could serve um, on horseback in a battle if they chose, but the English tended to fight on foot in this period, and the mounted archers that were raised in retinues with the men-at-arms, they also dismounted in order to use their longbows in battle. But perhaps the most interesting thing about the army is the technical backup and the logistical achievement. A fleet of over 700 ships was required to carry half a million arrows. Fifteen thousand horses. That the fleet had fifteen thousand mariners. More mariners took the army army that was in the army. They also had engineers. They had to prepare to rebuild the bridges that they knew the King of France would break across Normandy during the campaign, and they had to be supplied. As I've said, with arrows and all the other... And also with food and stuff. Yes, to a certain extent, for the beginning of the campaign. But as Anna said, the ravaging of Normandy was also about gaining supplies for your army, as well as Mm. depriving your opponent of them and looting towns. The the looting of French towns in Normandy was quite extraordinary. Something that hadn't been experienced in the Hundred Years' War. Can you particularise that? Well, uh, Caen was attacked on the 26th of July... Uh, It was a bit of a mess from the point of view of the assault, because the English army got out of hand, according to the sources, but the town was stripped of its valuables. Many of the town dwellers were, were killed, the wealthier ones were ransomed. and and sent back to England, along with a handful of French noblemen who'd also been taken prisoner and sent back for ransom in England. I think what's interesting here is how controlled all of this
3: was. Edward III was in charge of it and it's the time when we have the first evidence of some military ordinances for the army. As Andrew said pillaging was encouraged, but there were also orders not to attack churches, not to attack women. Now, whether these were all maintained of course we don't know, but I think Edward was quite keen, for instance, to allocate a certain mileage on either side of the army to take food. It's a control thing because he wants to get through the territory as quickly as he possibly can.
0: I was fascinated by what you said about the organisation and more mariners
1: than soldiers. Over 80 ports supplied ships for the fleet, um, which was essentially a requisition merchant fleet. There was a tiny little core Royal Navy of, of, of king's ships, but the vast majority of the over 700 ships were supplied by merchants and ship owners in England, requisitioned into service. Now, some of them stayed with the army after they'd landed and proceeded along the Norman coast, attacking small Norman ports after each other, and again, looting and burning and sending the, the booty back to England. So they didn't care what the French thought of them then, did they?
0: Well, well they did care, they wanted yeah. the
1: French to be frightened of them. Yes, indeed, yeah, and as Anne yeah. says, and as Erica yeah. was saying, you know, we're really talking here about probably provoking the King of France yeah. into accepting battle, and no better way of doing it than to completely devastate Normandy, which as mm. Erica says, provides quarter of the revenue of the kingdom.
0: So that's going on, but battle hasn't commenced, but we're moving towards the fighting bit. Um, And Philip must have known that this was going on. Word must have got back fairly quickly, very quickly.
3: What was his response? His response is, I think, of some shock. I think it takes him a while to decide what to do. But he does start to get an army together, and it's clear that Edward is provoking him. Edward, astonishingly, moves nearly up to Paris. He gets up to Poissy, just outside Paris. And I think Philip... Sitting in Paris is hoping that he can fight a battle near Paris because that would have brought out all the Parisian militias, all of the troops that he's been able to to uh, pull together. But Edward is crafty. Edward doesn't want to fight on bad terms like that. So what he does is draw Philip away from Paris and he moves along to the Somme estuary and he crosses a very famous crossing here at a place called Blanchetac. One of the most difficult things for a medieval army, particularly the sort that Andrew's described, is getting them across a big river estuary and the Chronicles celebrate that as one of Edward's great achievements. Why does he cross the Somme? because he wants to get into the county of Pontieu, that area that the English kings had held, the area they'd inherited from Eleanor of Castile, the wife of Edward I. And, astonishingly, too, Edward the third has actually been to Cressy before, he was there in 1329 uh, now I don't think in 1329 he thought that's going to be a nice place for a battle, <laughs> but even so I think it's helpful for him to call Philip into territory that uh, he claimed so he gets to Cressy Philip has followed him to Amiens, Abville and Edward waits there uh, between Cressy and Wadi Kaur for Philip to come So Philip
0: walks into the trap? Definitely Erica, let's talk about the French organization and how did they get prepared? They were in a bit they were in a hurry, but what did they do that made them a big organized force, which they were? We're told they're bigger than the British force, many many nobles on horseback, twelve thousand, and so on.
2: It's uh, often described as a feudal army, um, because what Philip does is he uses a tool called the the bond the ban to summon up the people who owe him military service. Uh, in exchange for the lands that they've done homage. And this actually means that we're not talking about a French army per se it's people who are loyal to the king but they are normans they are burgundians they are Picards. they're being called from all these other territories around the kingdom and then on top of that philip can also use what's called the arrière bond the the rear band to call up town militias this is where paris would have been useful to to basically summon everyone in the kingdom who can to fight plus he has allies the king of bohemia um the count of flanders again coming in so there are allied princes as well And this feudal army is then supplemented by paid troops, most notably... A large corps of uh, Genoese crossbowmen who are going to play a big role in the battle. Worth flagging them up now. They're organized into um, battalions, each under the leadership of uh, one of the the great princes who who brought them there. And this has some pros and cons. The advantage, as you said, it's a big army. Conservative estimates have it at about I think twenty six thousand on the on the low end. Um, and they have a really strong cavalry. The French knights are known as the flower of European knighthood in this period. Um, So they are just known as an elite fighting force. But, on the other hand, trying to get an army this way is a slow process. There are people who are summoned, like the um, Counts of Savoy, who don't make it there till the next day, which makes planning of it difficult. And you get mixed quality if you're summoning everyone who can fight. I mean, can is is a loose word. And then on top of that, there are problems with how do you deploy them most effectively? Where do you put the crossbowmen? Where do you put the cavalry? And, uh, uh, in effect, uh, in this particular organisation, Philip puts the crossbow men up front, cavalry behind, and that's going to play out in um, some in unexpected ways when they uh, finally get onto the field.
0: Andrew, so there they go, 26th of August. Why at that place? Why? why he, he, this place was chosen by Edward, Edward yes. III.
1: Why did he choose this particular place? What were his advantages? I, I think Anne has put a finger on it, absolutely. It's Pontier. We know he was going there from halfway through the campaign because he sent a letter back to England saying, you know, send reinforcements to Croatois, which is on the north bank of the Somme. We know he was going there. It's symbolic. It's his droit héritage. It's something that he inherited from his his forebears as a provocation to Philip VI to challenge the French king on land that you've paid homage for. <laughs> That's the key thing. Also, Pontier was known to quite a few members in the, of his army. One of his senior lieutenants, Bartholomew Bo- Berger, should been seneschal of Pontier in the mid thirteen thirties. So there was that. But yeah, and, and the point is that he—they would have known the ground. They would have known about the Blanche attack ford that Anne mentioned earlier. It's a major crossing of the Somme, the only crossing of the Somme below Adville. But what was it like? Was was it a hill? Was it a valley? What was it? Well, the ground that was marched towards, not looked for, but marched towards, which suggests that they did know that it was going to be useful to them, is essentially a, a valley on the edge of the town of Cressy. On the western side, where the English deploy in a classic defensive formation... They will sit and wait, displaying the quartered arms of England and France as provocation to the King of France when the advance guard of the French army arrives. The advance guard will arrive at the base of the valley... They won't be able to cross from the east because there's a steep bank there, so they'll be channelled through a narrow bottleneck into the area beyond where they can deploy. But coming up behind them constantly will be more and more horsemen, more infantrymen, pushing them into this confined space. And in front of them the extreme provocation of the Prince of Wales with his quartered arms and li- uh, lilies of France.
0: 16-year-old Prince of Wales, the black 16-year-old, yeah. It, up,
1: it's, uh, it's quite a at thought, At the centre of the main uh, battle. On the main the flank, yeah. Absolutely. Surrounded, of course, by bodyguards. Never mind, naturally. it's 16. <laughs> and remember that Philip VI had been provoked endlessly during the Normandy campaign, the desolation of Normandy. He'd been tricked outside Paris as he'd seen it. You know, the man's blood was up. Now, some would say that he lost control of the French army and that there were so many noblemen in the French army who just wanted to go for it after so many years of standoffs where the two armies simply hadn't fought. Others say that Philip lost his, his cool. Well, I let's think come some, to Anne. Uh, Anne.
3: I'm just going to add in a further thing about uh, what Andrew said. We think that Philip was advised by some of his noblemen not to fight. Uh, So I think they realised that he was walking into a trap. And indeed he was. If we can imagine that Edward, who has a very good vantage point, he draws up his army essentially with a hill and woodland uh, behind there. He, he can see what There's is there was woodland happening. behind him. There's woodland and It reminds me of the way the Romans
0: really put, uh, finished off the Celts. They had exactly that formation in front of a wood. Anyway, never Absolutely. mind. Absolutely. Yeah. And I
3: think what you do is you, you deploy your troops in the most effective way possible. He's yeah. got a smaller army. Smaller armies always stay put and adopt a defensive position. There's some suggestion he even had like a, a wagon camp uh, either around or at the back or at the sides. But what he does, he has his men-at-arms in uh, groups there and he has archers on the flanks. And I think probably archers in some sort of formation between the the men-at-arms as well. So he's protecting his men-at-arms. They're going to be the ones, the men-at-arms, who will be the hand-to-hand fighting against their fellow men-at-arms on the French side. But Edward's plan is to cause as much damage to the French before they can even get to fight. Which with brings us to the longbowmen,
0: which are both effective Correct. and romantic, aren't they, really? Well, uh, they uh, like the longbowmen, <laughs> I think it's great. Take the longbowmen turn up and do it, the business. It's an interesting thought. And not all of them were Robin
3: Hoods, you know, not all of no, them I were crack no, no. shots. I realise that he didn't there matter a few, a few if you had of them. 8, 8, little, okay.
0: Few of them are little. Peccadillas, but on the whole, they were stout, sturdy Englishmen who ser- could shoot a longbow half were, a mile of it And was.
3: they were very disciplined. Yeah. They were either in retinues or county groups and that sort of thing. They would have been told when to shoot. Front rank shoot now, second rank shoot now. It's, it's sporadic uh, shooting of the, the arrows there. But in fact, they sit there all day and nothing happens that's what's intriguing about uh, Cressy. Philip is seen to appear with such a huge army, it's going to take him a long time to get into the field, and as uh, Andrew has said it's sort of funnelling in, there's not enough space The French do decide, he does decide to give battle, Philip, even though not all his men are there, and that's probably very foolish, and he sends the Genoese crossbowmen in first, uh, and that's fine because you might have said, well, they will counteract the English archers except for two things, one is you can only fire one crossbow bolt for about every three arrows and also, you need to protect yourself while you're reloading, and the crossbowmen had these tall shields and they were still back in the bag train, so he sent them in naked, if you like, to the fight.
2: The crossbowmen really end up taking the brunt of that initial longbow attack there. It's not something that they've ever seen before, and what are they supposed to be able to do about it? They actually get blamed for the defeat a lot. They're, they're said to have been cowardly and to have left the field, um, but that's really not fair on them. They're getting mowed down by these arrows. Uh, what else are they you really supposed to do? You don't have generous
0: connections, do
2: you? <laughs> uh, No, I have to, I have to com- confess to being half French, but that's <laughs> yeah, but it is- um, <laughs> (laughs) It is
3: said that Philip Philip had any of them left, killed after the battle. Whether
2: that's true or not, I But but then it's a problem of organisation because they are out in front. And so the, the charge, the cavalry charge that's then supposed to close with them can't get past... This this massacre that's already happened. Uh, th- yeah. Though it is worth noting that, contrary to some belief, the, the uh, studies have shown the knights do close. They, it's not that they never get there. Uh, there is hand to hand fighting after. So
0: do they close and then get off their horses and go for hand to hand fighting, or do, well, they sh- do they do they fight
1: from their okay. horses? You it's clear that the Count of Blois did dismount with his retinue and advanced on foot he could see that the horses were being mown down i mean those were the principal targets of the archers of course and you bring the horses down and you cause carnage There's there's a french chronicle that says rather vividly on this day men were killed by their horses so the Count of Bois dismounts, marches forward with his retinue, and this is probably where the hand-to-hand fighting comes in that Erica mentions. Mm-hmm. We know there was a real melee around the Prince of Wales' standard. It falls mm-hmm. at one point. We know that mm-hmm. because the man who raised it again, Sir Thomas Daniel, is given an annuity subsequently by the Black Prince. But it was clearly, for a moment at least, a near run thing. Some of the French chronicles say that the Prince of Wales was taken prisoner for a while it may or may not be so yeah, and it goes on for
3: hours as well yeah, i mean wh- it may not have started till about 4 o'clock but it said it goes on till it becomes dark well getting dark is quite late on the 26th of august so yeah. uh, but i think what's interesting here we've often concentrated on whether arrows can pierce armour what they're most effective against in this battle are horses mm. you can imagine arrows hitting horses they rear up they their rider falls off it's just absolute chaos the horse is not armed uh, not at this point. You couldn't really fully arm a moving right. horse, I think, uh, yeah. uh, like that. But so there are 12,000 horses which were exposed as targets. Uh, definitely, yes. And I think it's quite interesting because the French chronicles in particular don't say that much about fighting on foot. They no. do concentrate on the horses. Are they blaming the horses like right? they're blaming the uh, Genoese crossbowmen?
0: <laughs> <laughs> when did uh, Philip... King of France decide that he had enough and when and how did he
1: retreat? Well, as the... Night follows day. He was pulled off the field by Jean de Beaumont. We're having to interpret chronicles here, and some, of course, will say that he carried on fighting whilst the nobility were running away. Yeah. Uh, others say that he was wounded um, and had to be taken off the field for that reason. But what is clear that he left quite late in the battle. He'd he'd already he was probably already aware that his close friend John, the King of Bohemia, had been killed, and probably his brother. Count of Alençon, he'd been killed as well. The Count of Flanders, the Count of Blois, he died. A whole crowd of French nobility were killed. And so when Philip leaves the battlefield and then goes to Amiens afterwards, not Paris... That wouldn't be a good, good idea at this <laughs> Why stage. Not? Well, because, I mean, his reception would have been appalling. One can imagine. Because he's, he's a loser. Well, yeah. <laughs> yes, a, a loser. And the problem he was going to have in the next few months is raising a new army. All of these casualties we've mentioned, I mean, we're talking probably 2,000 noblemen, knights, and esquires, including a staggering list of senior noblemen. I've mentioned several already. The Duke of Lorraine. Uh, I mean, the list goes on and on and on. And these are the hubs in the recruiting networks of all medieval polities. But in France, they would find it very difficult for some months to raise a new army. Fortunately, he's got the army that John of Normandy is bringing up from Aquitaine as a starting point. And so by July 1347, he is able to bring an army to try at least to relieve the siege of Calais. Well, we're we're going before our
0: horse to market. I'm still on the battlefield. He's leaving the battlefield, and so he goes. Do the the, the
1: English pursue him? What happens? Do they just stand and cheer? Yeah, well, what? It's happens? got it's got dark, and they don't pursue uh-huh. him. And in any case, if he's gone towards Le Bois, he's gone up the length of the valley up to the northeast. Most of the army is still uh, the French army is still there, probably spread out around the countryside after dark. The following day, further French contingents appear, including I mentioned him earlier, the Duke of Lorraine. These are summarily massacred by the English who come out and catch them uh, exposed and some Chronicle has said that more casualties were inflicted on day two of the battle than on the first day, certainly amongst the common soldiers of France. Well, mm. what about the English casualties? Some
3: <laughs> say like 48. We're in Agincourt yeah, I mean, territory really here, uh, and I think we can never know the exact number, but they're very, very low compared with it. I mean, no leading nobles really die on, uh, on this occasion, so it's such an asymmetrical battle. But I think we've got to remember that Edward could win the battle, that didn't mean to say he'd won the war because a classic problem in medieval times was if you were so badly defeated as Philip VI was, you weren't going to come to the negotiating table. (laughs) So Edward had to do something else and that's what's, I think, so fascinating. He moves off pretty quickly because by the 4th of September he is laying siege to Calais. Well, just before we go to Calais,
0: what reasons do you give for the... English victory
3: at such a level on that battlefield? I would blame the French personally. I mean, I know the English longbowmen are very important and they fulfil Edward's objective of fighting as much of the battle as possible at a distance. But I think essentially it is French folly. The French could have withdrawn maybe earlier. I suppose we could say that's courage that uh, persuades them not to. Maybe the courage of, of Philip himself. They should not have fought on that day they could have waited until the following day and they could have thought a little bit more about how they were going to face the the archers but of course it's an unknown quantity they couldn't train against arrow shot in that that kind of way so it's a very interesting problem that the english that the french have got what do you think
1: I think that Anne is right, but, but but in a way you can turn it around and say that Edward had engineered a situation where the French made a dreadful mistake and uh, Philip will always be held responsible for it. Um, this is a disorganised army, as a French chronicler says, by hastiness and disarray were they undone. And I think that that's probably true. But this is a situation that was engineered and Edward had selected ground that, that exploited his tactical deployment perfectly. In what way could Edward be said to have been in charge of what
0: was going on when the battle after the battle commenced, as it were? And there's a lot of shouting and yelling
3: and an awful yeah. lot of people. Oh, I, think, uh, I think he was. I think he's. I mean, there's a, a suggestion that he was up a windmill uh, viewing it. And I think also we must remember that there was a great uh, uh, sort of lot of discussion in advance between him and his leading commanders. And these English armies are well trained. They've been together for a long time. That march across Normandy is important. So they've trusted each other. They all knew what they, they needed to to, to do and shows of personal bravery like that of the Black Prince really do stimulate bravery in others so to come
0: back despite the fact that he had bodyguards and so on the 16 year old did show personal bravery. Is that yeah, he did. Saying? And
3: there's a lovely story where people come to Edward and say, "Your son is in danger," and he says, "Oh, let him win his spurs." Now, whether it's true or not, but uh, I suppose we could say, you know, he's got other sons, so I don't think he was as careless as that. I think <laughs> that he knew that his son, at, supported by his his retinue, would win.
0: There are a surprising
2: number of heroic teenagers over the course of the Hundred Years' yeah. War. There are. You just yeah. have to go and do it. <laughs>
0: yeah. yeah. What were the consequences for?
1: So he's lost and he's retreated. And then what? This is a participatory warrior nobility in France, just as it is in England. And if you lose them on the battlefield, you've lost the politicians as well as, and administrators, as well as the soldiers in your country, the senior ones. So it's very difficult, and it it, it takes him until the following summer to raise an army. And then, when he has the opportunity to
3: face Edward outside Calais, he decides not to, he doesn't dare fight another battle. Is that smart? I think it is on his part Uh, I mean I suppose we could say what would have happened after that, maybe they were all lucky that the Black Death hit and (laughs) their war was suspended for a few years, but that siege of Calais is remarkable, it's one of the greatest sieges in history So let's
0: just get it right for for listeners Edward, instead of going for Paris, which you would have seen in inverted commas obvious, he swung around and he made for Calais this great fortress uh, port, it's rather, it is rather a mystery to many people why he didn't push for the French crown after such a victory at Crecy.
2: Well, this raises questions about what he actually wanted in the first place. <laughs> is he claiming the French crown because he actually thinks he's going to become King of France or because he wants to use it as a bargaining tool to ultimately gain the concessions in Aquitaine and uh, and and his other lands and possibly a bit more if he can and this has been this has been hugely debated among historians and it is worth noting that on occasions when he is triumphant here and again uh, after the Battle of Poitiers in 1356 when he captures the French king yeah. we at no point end up with a treaty where he's saying no you have to give me the French crown it's always I will give up my claim to the French crown if um, so there are definite indications that he might be more interested. He might even have doubts whether he realistically could become king of France. Could he even be accepted? Could he hold the territory? Too many questions, mm-hmm. but it's a great political peace. It
3: is indeed and in 1356 he adopts the title Duke of Normandy so maybe his ambitions are now extending beyond Aquitaine but at the end of the day in 1360 in the treaty he settles for a much bigger Aquitaine and Pontia and Calais but to be held in full sovereignty i.e. will never pay homage again and we can see this in the change of his title. He's been Duke of Aquitaine he changes his title to Lord of Aquitaine parallel the Lord of Ireland, the other title that he has, and he creates the Black Prince, Prince of Aquitaine. So clearly he thinks he's created a new polity, essentially part of the English crown, uh, but all those lands in France. Finally, do you think this
0: battle set the scene and set the uh, method which the battles between France and England were to continue?
3: I think it did, but I think the English had no choice. The English had an archer-rich army all the time. They didn't have enough men-at-arms, and therefore, if they were going to face the French with a large enough force, they had to recruit archers. They'd already done it at Hallidon Hill against the Scots. That's an archer-rich army as well. But it is an amazing weapon. It's a kind of medieval equivalent, if you like, of the machine gun because it's causing so much damage at a distance, and also it's very easy to get archers, although Edward started to panic a bit about that in the 1360s and forced everybody to practice on a Sunday uh, with the longbow, but essentially it was easy to recruit such people. When the king campaigns in person, he wants a big army, he's got
1: to have these archers with him. Remember the f- half a million arrows at the beginning you can't be too sort of extravagant in arrow storms and yes it's true that you want you want to kill as many of your opponents at a distance as possible but you can't waste too many so there's going to be a lot of precision aimed shooting at much closer distances we know that before the battle of Cressy, edward had already asked for for more supplies of arrows so he was already running perhaps a bit low as before he'd even reached Caen, or when he'd reached Caen. Cressy, we don't know how many arrows he had, but he needed to use them clinically. Take out the Genoese crossbowmen first, and then just allow the heavy cavalry to come in and take them relatively close. We think that the archers were allocated 24 each. That was the
3: basic uh, allowance. So they're not shooting them all the time. They are controlled
2: shooting. There are lessons for the French as well in this that will shape future battles. For instance, the, the the disaster at Poitiers 10 years later, does the French king get captured because the whole running away from the field last time didn't mm. look so good? King John, the successor to, to Philip, founds an order of chivalry based on the principle we don't retreat from the field. That goes very badly multiple times. So, so there are, they're not great lessons, but there are lessons. And then the other lesson is, of course, they do quite well when they don't fight. France <laughs> is a big kingdom. It's a rich kingdom. It can, in many ways, afford to wait the English out. Uh, so so a lot of the Hundred Years' War is then spent hunkering down, waging a war of attrition, um, which is not fun for, for the French the population. Finally,
3: but. in the 1440s, Charles VII starts to develop his own longbowmen, and maybe that's how he wins <laughs> at the end.
0: And we always taught at school early on in history that the French are so rich they can always recover in a year or two and come back again, <laughs> compared with... English. Okay, well, thank you very much. Thank you, Andre Ayton, Anne Curry, and Erica Gramgaring, and to our studio engineer, Jackie Marjorum. Next week, the pioneering 18th century Swedish botanist, Carl Linnaeus, who developed new systems for naming and classifying species. Thank you for listening. And the In Our Time podcast gets some extra time now with a few minutes of bonus material from Melvin and his guests. Thank you very much.
2: That's great. <laughs>
0: So what would you like to have said you didn't say?
2: I have one one thing, actually, because, you know, we we think about the consequences sort of at the the heart of... Of, of French politics, we think about what does this do to Philip? What does it do to the army? What does it do to politics in paris but the the impact of this you know we have a battle where we 're not taking prisoners no quarter has been given on both sides, and so we wipe out you know a generation of the French aristocracy, but they are the people who administer the localities, they keep order across the kingdom mm-hmm. they, they they have their own networks, a lot of the yes. decisions among the Normans, for instance, about whether they 're going to side with the English or side for the French yes. have to do with local rival and and the ties among them. So the fact that you just create chaos in these previously established networks, I think the impact must have been mm, felt abs- not just yeah. at the centre. It's really going to be felt a long ways away.
1: I think that the losses that the French sustained have never really been fully researched, have they? They
2: really need no, to.
1: They really do. It's, it's oh, a project I, I that I should agree. be
3: undertaken. I'd agree. I mean, actually, the losses are much greater than they are at Azincourt. Uh, <coughs> Uh, in 1415 although we make much emphasis uh, Mm. on that we can only really trace definitely about 350 dead possibly 500 I think there are many fewer Uh, Agincourt also is a much more regional battle, it's drawing troops only from really Normandy and Picardy, one or two additional areas (coughs) but the French are in civil war at the time and therefore they're not able to recruit Mm. as
1: nationally Mm. and it's quite incredible the distances some of the troops have come in 1415 allies um yeah. i mean the, the count of savoy was on yeah, his way exactly. and arrived too late and had yeah. to bypass the battle and take control of montreuil to the to the northeast you,
2: you really can't understand the yeah. hundred it's not france versus england no. it's england and then the kingdom of france which is made up of it's a patchwork it is all these pieces and the whole story is about whether those pieces are getting along
1: <laughs> plus <laughs> you know. plus allies like john king of exactly. bohemia Oh and his contingent of five hundred sort of Czech and other Luxembourg, and all sorts of other knights
2: I, I, I feel we should also just mention that he he himself is, the, the king of Bohemia is blind and he still fights he, and they 've they've studied his skeleton and yes. he 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 got into hand to hand combat uh, yeah. being led by his men even though even though he was uh, Yes. I think
1: the issue that there are no, or hardly any, prisoners taken in the yeah. French army is something that's worth mentioning again, yeah. comparing with Azincourt
3: and Poitiers. And Poitiers,
1: yeah. and Poitiers particularly, mm. ten years later, where the King of France and a whole host of mm. French noblemen are taken prisoner, and we know about this because they have left a big imprint in the records. But they're worth a lot of money.
2: That's what knights fight for, right? It's, it's, it's like partly about it, honor and it's partly about what well, you well, get really like rich If you, you, you capture it's people. like winning the lottery. Well, you, can take,
1: a you can scour the records after Cresty and find practically nothing. Mm. Mm. I think one but has been found three. recently. Yes. Yes. A, a yeah. French esquire who yeah. claims to have been yeah. taken prisoner and ransomed after the battle. Yeah. But I know of no others mm. that are yeah. named. And one or two of the chroniclers mentioned Why is that then? Ah, well, that's a really interesting question, is it? Is it? Is it about? Is it about the archery? Is it about the horses? Again, I the think f- it's said that uh, both sides sort of yeah. said no
3: quarter. Yeah. it's yes. rather like battles yes. of, the of the walls They raise the battle roses, standards. The, the, this, the French yes. early yeah. and
2: the, the English standard. Of the, the dragon says, No, we're yeah. going to we're going to go all out, and it's partly a disciplinary thing, because if the knights are busy trying to you know turn a profit, it becomes much more individualized. So the attempt to suppress that can be about sort of keeping some order, at least this argument uh, has been made. Um,
3: I wonder if the cavalry charge makes a difference as well, yeah, because I of course so. the Dutch court, mm. they're fighting on foot, and at Poitiers uh, largely on foot as well, and whether uh, they're more likely to be killed as, as Andrew said, by their horses, you know that mm. it's a much more dangerous yeah. Yeah, thing so. to, to, to do, because you've got lots of horses, sort of uh, riderless, and it's just be absolutely chaotic. You can't actually mm. get through to the English men-at-arms to start fighting with them.
2: Mm. What, what, what I I find really striking, though, is the results of this. We ha- we have descriptions from the heralds who have to go around and identify all the bodies afterwards, and they're clearly quite traumatized by it. You know, it's harrowing yeah. trying yeah. to find these bodies that have been hacked apart, trying to identify these these symbols of the heraldry that yeah. have been destroyed, and so they actually get it quite wrong who's died. Um, I think Edward sends a report that's a, a 50% wrong in terms of the names he says have died. Some of it's optimism, but some of it's just well, there's a lot of misinformation because the result of not taking prisoners is a really exceptional level of carnage. This is not the norm for Mm. for medieval warfare.
1: I I was going to say something about the... um resource disparity of England and France which makes it even more extraordinary that this was achieved within ten years of the war, a third of the population a much smaller economy but it's a a kingdom, England, that's more tightly administered Mm -hmm. and they have certain advantages, taxation systems that are more national and more controlled from the centre they also of course have sheep Because
2: uh, you, uh, could uh, manipulation you could argue, you could argue Edward, that the yeah. Battle
1: of Crecy was won on the backs of probably well, ten million uh, sheep in England and Wales, because the wool trade, which eventually goes through Calais, that's another reason why capturing Calais is rather good, from so it's a hub for the wool trade, um, yielded at least half of the tax revenues per year. But it's also what there. won
3: the Flemish over in 1340 yeah. when Edward was accepted by the the people of Ghent Bruges as yes. king of France. It was as a, we have the document there the the trade treaty if you like and they were going to be given a kind of 100% con, sort of access to that uh, wool trade from England. So what were the
0: basic practice here? but France was three times bigger than three population. times greater population, yeah. yes. Yeah.
1: Yeah. And Proportionately richer, yeah. yes, it must be. Uh, you know, b- except b- that the English crown at this point had better access yeah. to its wealth via taxation. Yeah, but also, yeah, it's the Hundred mm-hmm.
2: Years' War because it takes the the French government apparatus. Yeah a long time to ramp up to really be getting yes. efficiency out of what it does. I think have. it's
3: also thought that the English were able to borrow money more easily. But you need a cash flow because your armies have got to be paid quite a lot of money, you know, given in advance and that kind of mm. thing. So if you've got access to good financial arrangements, I think the French are slower because they think yes. they don't need it also, there's always an advantage with the aggressor the aggressor attacks, the French can't really do much, they can't Mm -hmm. raise men they can't raise taxes, until the English are actually in the country so they start off really that's actually actually a
2: principle of the time is that you're only allowed to raise taxes when there is an immediate cause so you have to wait for the war to arrive and then you can't necessarily convince the places that aren't currently being invaded to help pay taxes to defend the rest of it, it doesn't have this idea that sending resources to the centre is in their best interest, so it's a lot of uh, PR.
3: <laughs> I think Cressy would be more famous than Agincourt had Shakespeare written a better play about it. <laughs> so, uh, Henry V is so much better than Edward III, where they're very confused as to what the battle is and who was there. Yes.
0: Well, thank you very much. That's great. I think the producer's going to come and ask you a leading question. Oh dear. You like a cup of tea? <laughs> yes. Have a cup
3: of her- herbal tea, tea, please.
0: tea, please. Ordinary
1: tea.
3: I'll, I'll go on the ordinary
1: going <laughs> wagon. Just tea with milk yeah. From BBC Radio 4.
3: This is Breaking Mississippi, the explosive inside story of one man's war against racial segregation in 1960s America. I knew the state of
0: Mississippi would stop at nothing, including killing
3: me. James Meredith's mission to become the first black student at the University of Mississippi triggers what's been described as the last battle of the American Civil War. It's a fight that draws in the KKK and even President Kennedy himself.
0: Can you maintain this order? Well, I don't know. That's what I'm worried about.
3: And we must fight!
0: I thought, wow, this could be it. This could be the beginning of World
3: War III. Now aged 89, James Meredith tells his story. I'm public radio journalist, Jen White, and this is Breaking Mississippi. Available now on BBC Sounds. Kanye was just more gonna make it happen. He was one of them people that I knew was gonna win Grammys. You know, no one man
1: can sustain
0: or should have to even try
1: to sustain
0: that much power. I think what I'm just trying to say is it's so much bigger than Kanye.
1: On an all-new season of making from WBEZ Chicago, the rise and fall of Ye, the artist formerly known as Kanye West. Listen wherever you get your podcasts.